Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And today we're going to piggyback on what we looked at last week from Philemon 25. You will recall if you were here, the simple wording of that ending salutation from Paul. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And we focused last week on the grace of Jesus Christ. We learned that Christ's grace is that which saves us from our sin. We're going to touch on that a little bit today. We also learned that Christ's grace is responsible for our sanctifying life. That is, God has set us apart to be used by Him. And He not only sets us apart to be used, He gives us the power whereby we can fulfill our role as disciples of Christ. Thirdly, we learn that Christ's grace is that which strengthens us. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's Jesus in us, the hope of glory. Jesus is the one. And then lastly, we look in some detail at the grace of Christ is that which sustains us. This world is a difficult place to live in as a Christian. There is opposition, and understandably so, because the whole world, the Bible says, lies under the control of Satan himself. It's his domain, the domain of darkness, from which we were called out of the domain of darkness into his marvelous light in order that we might declare his glories. But to be sustained by the Lord, by his grace. Let me remind you, of just one verse that substantiates that. It's in 2 Timothy 2.1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is not merely that which God uses to open the door for us to be part of His family. It's something that permeates all of our lives in Christ. All of it is based upon grace. Today we're going to read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I won't comment much, if any, on the first two verses because we looked at those last week. But we're going to concentrate our time together on verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning with verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'd like to begin by considering what this text teaches us about us as the good workmanship of God Himself. The word which is translated workmanship is a word that sounds like this if spoken from the original language. Poema. Do you hear an English word that might be derived from that word poema? The word poem comes from that word. It is as if to say that when God sees us, He sees us as His masterpieces, His works of art, as poetry is considered a work of art. I became curious as I was planning to share this message about 
Who is considered the elite of the poet world? Not currently, but throughout history. There were very few surprises. Not that I'm that well studied, but certain names probably pop into your mind immediately. Homer, author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, his name is on the list. As you go forward, we run on, on to Dante, and then, of course, Shakespeare. Then moving even further into history in the 19th century, early 19th century, the two leading figures in the movement of romantic poetry, William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and they had all kinds of protégés. Then moving into the 20th century, T.S. Eliot was considered by many as the first of the modern poets, but also considered was a man whom we know as Americans as Walt Whitman. Maya Angelou, some of you know her or know of her. She's gone now. Lewis, I mean, uh, Langston Harris, who was also a great poet. And on and on the list grows. But one poet was conspicuously absent. That would be God the Father. He is the perfect poet. And he did something amazing in you and me in saving us, first of all. Because in this book of Ephesians, we are told that as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you used to walk. You and I were D-O-A when we came into this world spiritually. We looked at that in some detail last week. So we want to look three things mainly which come out of this passage of Scripture. Three truths, the first of which is that we are God's perfect works. And you say, wait a minute, Mike. Last week you spent quite a bit of time verifying that none of us is good. Nothing good can come out of us until we are born again by the living and abiding Word of God. We looked at statements to that effect, particularly in the book of Romans, chapter 3, where the Word of God tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks God. There is none who understands God. There is none who is good or does good. That is the absolute truth. I'm not contradicting what the Word of God says or what I said last week because what we know, and we sang about it today actually, from 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Scripture tells us that God the Father made Jesus the Son, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. We're going to see a little bit later in Ephesians how we are the righteousness and holiness of God because we are of the truth. We know who the truth is. I just talked to a six-year-old girl and her father said, Tell pastor what's your catechism. He's teaching his children catechism as a father. What's your catechism verse is for this week? And she says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's beautiful to hear anyone say that, but a child six years of age being trained in that truth. 
He's the truth, right? Jesus is the embodiment, the personification of truth. But in addition to that, Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth, talking to the Father. Your word is truth. God's word is our truth. Jesus is the truth, and God's word is the truth. So we are perfect in our position in Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. What does this text say? We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. All old things have passed away. All has become new because we're in Christ. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus Christ dwells within us. He's the one who sanctifies us also. The Bible says He's not only our righteousness, He's our redemption. Jesus Christ is our sanctification. Praise God that we have Christ. And God the Father saw us before the creation of the world. Do you know that? He saw us. He knew us before the creation of the world. Psalm 100 says, It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. He made us the first time, and we came into this world with a flawed nature, a sinful nature, inherited, if we went back far enough, all the way to Adam. Adam was the first sinner, and everyone who's been born since, with the exception of Jesus Christ, fits that description as well. But we know that He has made us a second time. And this making of us, this new creation, is irreversible. The Bible says in the book of Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He does not pull the plug on us. Jesus himself says in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Jesus would never think about discarding you once you're in Christ. He paid too heavy a price to secure your salvation, as did God the Father this is our heritage as followers of Christ. Praise the Lord for what He's done in us in this regard. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do, that we might walk in those good works. Praise God for that. Let's go to the second thing. What's the first thing we looked at today? Who are we? We are God's perfect works. We do have inconsistencies, though. Is there anyone here this morning who is not always walking with the Lord? This is in no way to recommend getting off the path that is beaten for us by Christ. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. All your ways acknowledge Him. And what is the promise? He will make your path straight. Jesus has blazed a trail for us. He is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, is what the writer of Hebrews says. He's been there before we ever go there. But we do, from time to time, get off in the ditch of selfishness, sin, and we have to get back up out and get back in step with the Spirit of God and in step with the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we overcome these inconsistencies? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. 
Why do we have the inconsistencies and how do we overcome them? That's going to be answered in this short section of Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. That doesn't paint a very flattering picture, does it, of these Gentiles? Do you know it's like a mirror for us when we look at this passage of Scripture? You know that in the book of James, the Bible says the Word of God is like a mirror for us to see ourselves. Do you ever avoid looking at the mirror? I find myself doing more and more of that. I said, who is that? But it reflects who we are when we read the Word of God. And because we have the Word of God, let's read a little further in this passage of Scripture. 19, and they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then verses Verse 22, we'll come back to 20 and 21 in just a moment. Look at verse 22. In reference to your former manner of life, when Paul was writing about the Gentiles and the way that they were futile in their thinking, they had hard hearts, they were people who were darkened in their understanding. Does it ever amaze you how people who are superior intellectually many times can hear the principle of the gospel a great, clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And we hear these beautiful, powerful presentations of the gospel and they're just clueless. How does that happen? It's because they're darkened in their understanding. And until the Spirit of God comes and turns the light on, remembering that He also is described as the truth. He is the Spirit of truth. And He's given us the Scripture. And when the time comes for a person, no matter how intelligent or how unintelligent, when they hear the gospel, they give their lives to Christ and their lives are radically and irreversibly changed when they trust in Christ. But he goes on to say here in verse 22, that, 23, excuse me, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The word be renewed means this. Let me just read it the way I believe, and I'm sure I'm right about this or I wouldn't say it to you, would be a more clear understanding of what is written in the original language that you keep on being renewed in the spirit of your mind. We have the mind of Christ. It's there in latent form. It intrudes upon our thoughts sometimes in our actions when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. But we have to cultivate and develop the mind of Christ. Because in verses 20 and 21, as we go back there, it says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. 
Every one of us, when we yield ourselves to Christ, we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The result of that is that we are people who are enrolled in the school of Christ. The classroom is in Him, verse 21. Jesus is the classroom. Not only is Jesus the classroom, Jesus is the subject. The entire Scripture, by Jesus' own description to His apostles after He was raised from the dead, all of Moses and all of the Psalms and all the prophets, they have one subject pointing to the Messiah. Jesus is the focal point. Don't let anyone talk you out of reading the Old Testament. Remembering that that's what the early church had. They had the Old Testament, as we call it, the Hebrew Scriptures. And remember what Paul said, all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God, woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Who was he talking about? What we call the Old Testament. If that's all you and I had, it would be ample. But thank God that he moved in the hearts and minds of the apostles. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would bring to memory everything they had heard from him. And they would put it in written form. Some of them at least did. And we are the recipients of the truth of God that helps us to have our minds renewed how frequently. We can be renewed every day. As we open our word, we look at what the Bible says. Would you think about going one day without food? Some of you do it because you sense God's calling you to a fast. That's understandable. But you still eat the Word of God, don't you? Absolutely. Would you go two days without eating food? Three days? What will we conclude about you if you went more than a couple of days without eating. Something's wrong with you, right? You're sick. You're either sick in the heart or you're sick physically. But we have what Jesus says. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is our heritage. It's ours to hold and to read and to be taught by and to be guided by to have the avenue of intimacy with our Lord. This is how the mind is renewed. That's how we overcome the inconsistencies. Realizing Christ is our teacher. He is our rabbi. He is the one that we go to to be taught. Is there any more masterful teacher than the Lord? No, of course not. Let's go to the second truth that is in this passage of Scripture. What's the first truth? We are God's perfect works. Now, remember, I'm talking about from God's perspective. We know there are flaws in us, and we know what we need to do when we sin. What do we need to do? Confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And we repent of the sin. We turn away from that thought, those words, that action, and we get back on the path. And we do it as often as we have to do in the course of a day until he gives us victory over time. Sometimes there have been periods in my life when I 
wrestle with a certain sin, not just for a day or a week or a month, sometimes for literally years. But I kept coming before the Lord. I kept coming before the Lord. There's some that I'm still more subject to today than I was yesterday even, it seems. But we keep bringing those to the Lord, and He picks us up. He puts us back on the path, and we follow the Lord. Here's the second thing. We are God's progressive works. How's that? Well, we're His poems, of course. Let's look again. At verse 10, we are his workmanship. You think, okay, Mike, you're splitting hairs to an extreme. You do that a lot anyway, but today it's really over the top. We are. There's one word in the original language that translates those two English words, we are. And there's more than meets the English reader's eyes here. Because it's the idea of we are and we always will be. We are his workmanship. He's working in us even to this day. Revisions are necessary in our walk with the Lord. One of the great poets of American history was called America's Portrait, poet rather, by a man named Ezra Pound, who himself was an outstanding, by some people's measurement, poet in the 20th century. This man lived in the 19th century. I've mentioned him already once today, Walt Whitman. He's considered the father of free verse, When President Lincoln was assassinated, he wrote a quartet of poems. And they were broadcast as a quartet, as it were. The one that really was most gripping, some think the least really technical and good in terms of poetic work. It's called, Oh Captain, My Captain. Some of you are familiar with it. Do you know in 1888, he died in 1892 at the age of 72. I'm talking about Mr. Whitman. He was still revising that poem. He was still striving for more perfection in his art as he got more inspiration. Our father is the master poet. He's at work in our lives and he continues to revise us. What's he trying to accomplish in our lives? He's trying to make us more like his son, Jesus. This is what we are told in Romans 8. We're familiar with Romans 8, 28. I don't need to quote that. But it gives the reason why God causes all things to work together for good in verse 29. is so that we might be conformed to the image of his son. That we may become like Jesus. This is God's intention. And that requires work. It reminds me of the parable that is contained in Jeremiah 18. It was a visible parable. No words were spoken. Jeremiah was told to go to the potter's house. He goes to the potter's house. He watches this potter skillfully craft a piece of pottery. And then all of a sudden, the potter crushes it, starts all over. That looked like a waste of time to Jeremiah. Then God made it clear what he was seeking to say. He was saying that our lives are like a lump of clay and the wheel of the potter are the circumstances of life. And then sometimes the potter, the heavenly potter, sees flaws in the clay and not being willing to let us go without those flaws being addressed and reversed. What he does, he 
breaks it and starts all over. God has to break us of our selfishness. He is intent upon getting rid of that part of who we are, which the Bible calls the flesh. Self is really what it boils down to. He wants to get rid of that. And he is, remember, he is the master poet. He knows exactly what to do. And he reverses trends in our lives that are unacceptable to him. And at times it would look like he's being merciless. But understand that he is a loving father. Jesus himself says in Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, read about it in more length. About This is a picture of the love of God for us. So he revises us. Are you in revision? Let me just ask you. Anybody in here besides me in revision? I'm tired of being in revision. I don't know about you guys. I get tired of it sometimes, but it doesn't seem to change. I don't know. I'm just a slow learner, but the Lord keeps, he's faithful. He keeps coming to help me. We have to, going back to the idea of renewing our mind. I know somebody in here besides me has thought of Romans 12 too. What does it say? Stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. I sustained an injury that was in one way life altering, and it was a good injury when I was in high school. And the injury was to my knee. I won't go into detail, but one of the lingering effects of that injury was that the nerve that runs across your knee down to your big toe, which is responsible for raising and lifting the foot, was damaged. It was thought that I would probably have to wear a drop foot brace. For some time, God was gracious enough that I didn't have to do that. But even to today... From the time I was 16 years old until today, I still, when I get tired and I'm climbing steps, if I don't say to my foot, lift up foot, there is sort of an involuntary thing that happens when you're doing certain things. But I have to say, as recently as this month, I was climbing some steps, thinking about something else, and fell down. And it was, thank you for that. Oh, I wasn't fishing. <laughs> but nevertheless, I needed some, oh, then I guarantee. But fortunately, no bones were broken. It was not a bad deal. But what my point in using this illustration is that we have to continually speak to our souls. Have you ever stopped to consider many of the Psalms, especially of King David, who was a great poet, Next to God, I think he's the best, frankly. But in one of his psalms, Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Psalm 42, he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? 43, most scholars think they were originally just part of one psalm. Same deal. He spoke to his soul. Look. You and I need to speak to our souls when our souls are out of sorts with God. And God speaks to us and we respond. 
and we praise God, bless the Lord, because we know that is the position we are to occupy. We are God's progressive works. And here's the good news. What God starts, God always finishes. Isn't that good? Don't, don't give up your walk with the Lord. You're here today. You're hearing this message. Hopefully the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. You're on the edge of giving up on yourself. Well, thank God. The thing we need to give up on is ourselves, our own self-effort. We need to be able to trust God. The poet will finish his work. I mentioned Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He is known for the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Christabel was another big work of his. He had one poem that came to him in a dream, Kubla Khan. Some people think it's his best poem. But he woke up. Someone knocked on his bedroom door. He was staying in an inn in a place called Porlock in Great Britain. And he spoke to the man. By the time he went back, he couldn't go back to sleep and the rest of the deal was not there. From that time in the late 18th century until about 12 or 15 years later, he couldn't remember anything. And through the urging of some colleagues, he wrote it and it became a hit, so to speak. But God always finishes. He doesn't forget what he's promised and what he began in you, he will finish. Here's the third thing. What are the first two things we've looked at today? We are God's perfect works. And remember what I mean by that. It's not really what I mean that matters. What does the Bible mean by that? The second is we are God's progressive works. Here's the last thing. We are God's purposeful works. The whole notion that you or I are an accident of nature is absurd. Read science books that talk about the delicacy, the intricacy, the way in which the human body is created and how all the different systems are coordinated in such a way to give you life and to give you abilities that are really incredible. Just looking at the human body and seeing the process of fertilization of an egg, a one cell being, and then literally billions of cells over that nine-month period, and then out comes this beautiful child, at least to the mother. She or he is beautiful. (laughs) And to the dad, too, I know that. But think about what God does in those things. Our God is not ignorant about who we are. And we need not be either. Here's the last thing. We are purposeful. And look at verse 10 one more time. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the answer. What is our purpose? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is amazing. God knew me before He formed me in my mother's womb. And it's not because I'm Mike Woods. The same is true for you. David says in Psalm 139, All the days that were ordained for me were written in your book before there was even one of them. 
That's not unique to David. That's to all of us who know the Lord. He has a plan for our lives, and that plan is one that will include good works. Why good works? Jesus says it this way. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What is the Lord intent on? He's intent upon getting glory from us. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us that He created us for His glory. He gets that glory when we let our light shine in such a way. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But the main thing is we want to give God glory. Did Jesus glorify the Father? In His true Lord's Prayer in John 17, He talks about more than one time, I brought you glory on earth, Father. He's reminding the Father that. Father knew that, but it was just the way they related to each other. Where does Christ live if you are a child of God? He has taken His residence in you. That is mind-boggling, but it's true. I've seen it over and over and over again. I know about many of you, where you were before you came to Christ. I've heard many more of your testimonies about how your life was a wreck. And then Jesus came and He saved you. He came after you. He found you. And He changed you. You are a miracle of God. You are designed to glorify the Lord. All of us who know the Lord have that capacity. If we let our light shine before other people in such a way that they see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. You might be thinking, I thought you said today and on previous occasions, Mike, they were not designed to draw attention to ourselves. And you would be correct. But Jesus even talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, from which that verse that I mentioned about letting our light shine is found and derived. He says, Beware of practicing your righteous acts before others to be seen by them. That is that which creates a lot of discomfort for God because He insists on His being the center of attention instead of our being the center of attention. So, as we continue this exploration of the good works, it means that we are to depend on the Lord. This is huge. I was reading a story, I'm sure it's true, purported to be, about a woman who went to work in a textile factory, and her job was to take threads and weave them in a pattern that would be eventually a bolt or many bolts of fabric. And in her on-the-job training, in her introduction, she was told, if you get tangled up, if your thread gets tangled up, stop right then and send for your foreman. Do you understand that? She said, yes, I understand that. Well, the inevitable happened. She did get tangled up, and she was trying to untangle it. She was embarrassed so soon on the job that she had a problem. And all of a sudden, the foreman came by, and he saw the mess that she was in. And he said, what's going on here? And she says, I tried my hardest. 
But it only got worse. And he stopped just a moment. In a kind voice, he said to her, Always remember that calling on me is that which is best for you. And I thought, that's like the Lord, isn't it? We get our lives so tangled up. And what does the Lord say? When you start sensing tangling in your life, what do you do? Go to the Lord with it. Go to the Lord and let Him do what He alone is capable of doing. Let me give you some exact examples of good works, if I may. I'm going to have to be rather quick here in the interest of time. Here are some of the things. Jesus says at the judgment, He's going to use a standard to evaluate our lives. He's going to divide the sheep from the goats. Those who are sheep are those who have done certain things, and they will rise from the dead as men and women who are recipients of the resurrection of life. There are others who do evil things. They're going to rise from the dead too. A lot of people think the rapture is just for believers. Look, Jesus is very clear in John 5. All people who have died in history are going to hear the voice of the Son of God and they're all coming out of the grave at the same time for judgment. And when they stand and they're separated, then the sheep are going to say, Lord, why did you pick us? He says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was a stranger. I was sick. I was a prisoner. And you fed me. You gave me water to drink. You clothed me. You took me in. You visited me when I was sick. You came to me when I was in prison. And all those sheep are going to say, now listen carefully. Lord, when did we see you in such a state? And he said, when you've done it under the one of the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it to me. In Galatians chapter 6, the Bible says that we are not to lose heart in doing good, not to grow weary, but instead, what are we to do? We are to do good to all men, and especially those of the household of faith. Why do you suppose Paul made that emphasis? The same reason that Jesus made the emphasis in his prayer to the Father in John 17, that we all be one as he and the Father are one, because it will be the final apologetic that will reach people for Christ. In the early centuries of the church, people who would observe, who weren't believers, scholars, and they would record and write what they observed among the Christians. One of the most well-known critics of Christianity say, said this, my, how they love one another. Dear brother, dear sister in Christ, we need to love each other more. We can't love too much in a biblical sense. And how do we show our love to one another? By responding to each other with good deeds. Not necessarily feeding or giving a water to drink, but spiritually responding to each other. This is what God wants for us because He will get glory. And the only way we can do it is to be dependent upon Him. Are you such a person who lets your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good work and glorify your Father in heaven? Is that your M.O.?
Is that what you want to be? I want to be like that. And I fail often in that regard. I want to finish with a woman whom I think was a patron saint. We read about her. Patron saint of do-gooders. Good deeds. Dorcas was her name. I like her Hebrew name better, Tabitha. That has a better sound to me. But that's beside the point. Here's this woman. Peter's near where she lived. She dies. It created such a furor of grief and tears. She evidently had no warning sign. She just died. For all we know, she might have been a younger woman who had a heart for widows. She reached out to widows who were bereft of their husbands and bereft of a stream of income that they might have been accustomed to. And she made tunics and garments. She took a talent which God had given her and she translated it into a good deed. And women's lives were changed. And many of those widows, women were widowed at a young age in that day and time. Many of those still had children at home, I would imagine. And those children were blessed by this dear Dorcas or Tabitha. And I bet those women at times would bring their children with them. And she died. Why did she die? What was the cause of her death? We don't know. Could be she was worn out because she worked day and night to minister, to do good deeds. Perhaps that was the case. We don't know. But what we do know is she spent time that she didn't have to spend investing in others. Look around you. There are people around you in this room. You don't know them. You'll never know how to do a good deed to them until you know them. The best thing you can do, of course, is to pray for other people. But we're to be men and women. And you may say, I don't have the means to do anything for anybody. Well, just do what the Lord leads you to do. Care for people. God will be blessed, glorified, and you will be fulfilling your purpose. What is our purpose? To do good works which glorify God in heaven. And by the way, lest I forget it, we're never to do these good deeds without giving God the credit and pointing people to Jesus Christ. He's the one who moves in our hearts to help us to be such people. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord, for your word. It is living and active. We are so grateful, Holy Spirit, for working in our hearts. And we do pray, Lord, that our church, not just our little bitty church here, Lord, but the Church of Christ in El Paso, in this border plex, in Juarez, in Las Cruces, all over this area, Lord, that the church would be the church. Jesus, you would fill the church with yourself. And we would be like you, knowing that the Word of God tells us that Jesus of Nazareth was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and power, and He went about doing good. Lord, that's not spectacular. We know it. But we want to be part of that, Lord. Use us to glorify You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.